0: Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Provcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the managing editor for Providence. And today we are bringing back the Dark Ops Provcast. Woo-hoo! So back in the day, we did a... Uh, I don't know how many episodes we did, but we did some movie reviews. Um, I think the last one I really remember is Dunkirk. Oh, and so you well, can go back into the, the archives. And we didn't do enough. Uh, yeah, so uh, so we're bringing it back. The movie reviews seem to do pretty well on the website. So I thought that some listeners might like to hear some more of those and so today I am speaking with Mark Lavecki, who loves war movies and today we're going to talk about the Liberator which is a Netflix series that came out on Veterans Day last month it's an animated miniseries series with four episodes and is based on a book by Alex Kershaw uh, Jeb Stuart who is known for writing the screenplays of Die Hard and the fugitive created and wrote this series so, the Liberator tells this story about Felix Sparks as they campaign in Italy during World War II before they go into Provence, France, and then into Germany. Um, in total, Sparks served 511 days in combat. And after World War II, he became a brigadier general and the ground commander for the Colorado Army Guard. He also served on the Colorado Supreme Court. So, after that long introduction, Lavecki, uh, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, thrilled to be here. Thrilled to be back.
0: For those listeners who don't already know, Mark Lavecki was the original managing editor for Providence and now is an executive editor. And he is at the Stockdale Center at the U.S. Navy War College. Is that right?
1: Naval War College. Yeah. Same branch. So that's it.
0: So Lavecki, why did you pick this animated film for the Dark Ops?
1: It's a great story. So uh, you've already alluded, it's the story of Felix Sparks, uh, primarily. But more than that, both the book, which which I admit to only having skimmed in preparation for this, but both the book and especially the miniseries focuses not just on Felix Sparks, uh, but the the role he played in leading an incredibly diverse infantry division, uh, made up of Mexicans and Native Americans and cowboys and folks who back home wouldn't necessarily drink together. But as you've said, for 511 days, uh, they fought. And they bled, and they served together, uh, helping to bring uh, liberation to Europe. And So it's an extraordinary story. That's uh, that's the primary reason. And this this love I have for war stories, it's it's you know it's it's because they're extraordinary human tales of courage and cowardice and good and evil and all sorts of other things. And I find them incredibly captivating.
0: And what do you think about the fact that it was animated? Do you think that helps or do you think that hurts the miniseries?
1: I suspect it's not going to hurt it. Uh, you know, like I don't know. I mean. Possibly like I, I think maybe my father he wouldn't watch it, he would have watched it otherwise. but I sort of I sort of don't believe that. I think uh, in aggregate, it, it may attract people who might be intrigued either by the new technologies because because it's, it's a weird animation, right. I mean it, it, you look at certain scenes, especially landscapes, and it's hard to tell uh, in certain moments whether or not you know what you're watching is, is live action or, or animation. I think it's an intriguing look. It's a beautiful look. It gives it a, a slightly bizarre uh graphic novel look to it, which I suppose again on, on balance I think that you know, that might serve it well. I suppose at various points I was worried that it was giving it an artificiality, which I don't think bears out in the end. I think, you know, it works. It's not an especially bloody animated uh film, so I thought, well, you know, maybe they did this to try to to tone down the graphic violence, but that didn't seem to be the, the idea. Um, so I, I'm, not, I'm really not sure what to think of it. I don't know if it's just pandering to people as young as you. Do you feel pandered to, Melton? What do you think?
0: Well, I don't know if I feel pandered. I, it reminded me of some anime that an old roommate forced me to watch way back in my college days, <laughs> which it wasn't my first choice right. to watch, but honestly, it wasn't a bad series, and it was a very captivating tale. And But it, yeah, it's a different... Medium, and uh, I, it's probably not my first choice that I would want to go back and watch it. But my understanding, so looking at the article here about it, it, says that it was the first ever produced in this type of hybrid animation, which used uh, CGI technology mm-hmm. and live action performance. I think just the art of it and the uh, you know trying to create this new type of medium is it's an interesting first right. step, and it it'll, I'll be intrigued to see if it's used again later and how it's improved upon.
1: Yeah. Sure. I go with it.
0: I'm not sure how other people I know I watched it with some people who didn't appreciate that aspect as much, but you know, say levy.
1: Right. I, I suppose the, the the criticism that I would expect to hear, uh I don't know that I have, is that it's somehow given the the story and the content of that story, it's somehow disrespectful. Like why why are you goofing around uh with new art forms or anime when you should be telling a you know, an incredibly sobering story. I don't buy that, uh, but, uh, but I could see that critique being made.
0: And even some of the anime that I saw, like, it can be a very sobering tale. Like, it's not made-for-children cartoon that you would expect in the U.S.
1: Yeah, correct. I mean, I, I, I remember you, you raised the question of anime. There, there's a, a Japanese anime called uh, Grave of the Fireflies, uh, or something close to that. I don't know if you've ever seen this, and it is in in that particular story. You could imagine why the anime actually serves the story, because the story is about uh, a pair of Japanese children, brother and a sister, who lose their entire family in a uh, firebombing of their city in the in the dying days of World War II. And it's the rest of the story is more or less uh, a chronicle of their slow death. It is a, it is a horrible movie in, in many ways it's sort of like a japanese version of the road uh where it's just this scenario that is every parent's worst nightmare of leaving your children abandoned in this world and the anime is almost a a mercy because you don't you don't have to watch the story uh unfolding on on you know live children and it, it allows a certain degree of distance while still effectively telling the story so i don't know if that's going on here but uh you know here it's a little bit more Less horrific a tale, I suppose,
0: mm-hmm. and also just the nature of like Netflix, where Netflix can really target a to a particular small audience who would really love that type of medium and genre. Whereas if you put this on to NBC for four weeks, that's not going to probably it's probably not for a wide general audience.
1: Right? No, agree. It's part of the glory of Netflix. It's you know when they do things well, or even Amazon, any of these, any of these streaming services that can do short mini series. Just fantastic. It's golden age of television in some ways.
0: Mm-hmm. So to kind of get into the story a little bit, one of the things you just mentioned earlier was the fact that this emphasis on the Native and Mexican Americans and their story of the fighting. And one of the things I thought, you know, I'm not very familiar with those stories. I'm What was it? Was it Code Talkers with Nicolas Cage a few years ago?
1: Wind Talkers, maybe, but yeah.
0: Right. Wind Talkers. And so I mean, other than that, I haven't seen those stories told a lot. I think it was in the first episode, kind of spoilers here, but when there's a German interrogator um, talking to one of the soldiers, and he's bringing up this whataboutism argument about, you know, yes, Nazi Germany's bad, but oh, America isn't that great either, and it kind of brings up the racism problems. And I've seen this motif play out in a few other movies, and I just finished reading a book called A Gentleman in Moscow, where there's a scene with this too, and so... Kind of talk about a gentleman in Moscow for just a couple seconds. Like, as the Russian Revolution was over and this transition from kind of the aristocrat character moving into being more of a commoner, and he is training and talking to a Soviet official, and the Soviet official kind of brings up the same argument about, yes, Soviet Union isn't good, but look at all the problems that America has and the racism and but in that story so this Soviet official is talking about how he, they're looking at movies and he's you know pointing out this like film Noir and he is baffled that the Americans would allow this film Noir which shows the you know depravity of mankind and the depravity the corruption in American government and he's like I don't understand why they would allow government why the government would allow this to happen because they're undermining their own ability to uh, You govern, and so his view was like: in order for the state to govern, they have to silence the opposition. And he kind of forgets the United States has strength because we are able to look at our past and we are able to critique it, and that produces a stability that will outlast the Soviets, that will outlast the fascists. And so, in that first scene, or one of those earlier scenes with the interrogation, as they're bringing up this whataboutism, um, I think it brought up an interesting contrast that kind of shows, shows both like the problems of race in America while at the same time, because we can talk about it, I think should offer some hope for the future. What are your thoughts on some of that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's right. I think uh, you know, America is constantly attempting to atone uh, for its own shortcomings. Uh, you know, we don't live up to ourselves. And uh, you know, you can say as a Christian, we don't live up to godly standards. All that—that's fine uh, and true. Uh, but America is also cognizant that we don't live up to our own ideals. And you know, it's it's never good to be a hypocrite. But one w- w- one of the virtues of being uh, a hypocrite is at least you have some values that you have said these we hold dear and these we aspire to. And I don't, I don't, I don't live up to them, uh, but we try to. Um, you know, you yeah. The, the, the whataboutism from a, an SS officer is something that I think most Americans can endure. I think, I think we can uh, we can prevail over that.
0: Mm-hmm. And another thing I appreciate in this movie is how it shows battles that are not normally shown on American movies. I feel like most American movies about World War II will focus on D-Day, Normandy, focus on Iwo Jima, and some of those other, you know, sure. similar battles, uh, Pearl Harbor, but they don't really talk about the campaign in Italy or Southern France. And especially like the Battle of Anzio, like I wasn't, you know, roughly familiar, but it was interesting to kind of like after seeing this and going and doing some more research and reading on it. So why don't you think that we show these types of battles more?
1: Yeah, It's a, it's, it's a good question. I mean, in, in, in a certain way, those are, you know, those are the, like, you know, if you're watching a musical, they are the... Uh, The set piece, you know, the the curtain dropper uh, uh, song, uh, you know, that's Normandy. That's, you know, these are the major battles, as you say, Iwo Jima. The 45th Infantry Division really didn't participate, arguably, in any sort of set piece of World War II. Uh, They invaded Sicily. They were in Salerno. Who knows about either of those battles? except experts or, you know, uh, uh, devotees, Uh, Anzio, as you say, many more people know about Anzio because it was so horrific. It was an incredibly costly battle um, that, uh, you know, could have gone in a couple different directions, some of them far more efficient and far more effective than uh, what actually transpired due to uh, possibly the fog of war, but just some boneheaded decisions that were made. But it was, you know, for, for a while, it, it was reminiscent of World War I with, uh, you know, people entrenched and essentially at a stalemate. So, you know, there's on the one hand, you could imagine, well, you know, that entrenched stalemate or, you know, dropping out of a landing vehicle and running across a bomb strewn beach and and pushing the Nazis, you know, off the shoreline. You know, which is going to be more exciting, which is going to be more interesting to see filmed? Uh, you know, this was a battle of attrition. That the forty-fifth Infantry Division faced uh, very often, you know. So, you know, after Anzio, uh, it's they don't get Normandy; they get Operation Dragoon, which is you know on the southern bit of France, off the Mediterranean, uh, and it's an uncontested landing. You know, it's not a great film moment. There are moments that they faced that I think are extraordinary. Our uh, Schalfenberg, uh, we were talking about the battle that took place. Um, you know, in the in the snow swept Alps, uh, that would make for gripping cinema, and I think are effective pieces in, in this miniseries. Uh, but these just aren't the headliners. You know, this isn't where the. You know, Italy was an important tactical element of the war, uh, but it's not as uh, obviously important as something like Normandy. You know, which you don't need to be a military expert to understand why Normandy was magnificent or critical. It's the uh, supporting role, I suppose, that the 45th Infantry Division and the Italian campaigns uh, played, played in the war that, that puts it sort of on the back burner of most people's imagination. Mm-hmm.
0: And you, uh, I know you wanted to say something about uh if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is, uh, I believe, in the was it is it the fourth episode or third episode? Third, fourth episode that they talk about that battle. Do you want to talk about what happened there?
1: Yeah, are there are there four episodes or five episodes total?
0: There are four. I think there should be five, but they made four. I feel like the uh, fifth episode could have been uh, Dachau, which we'll get to in a little bit here by itself. But I guess for production reasons, they just did four.
1: They did four. Okay, I, th- I thought this was part three, but maybe it is the last one. uh, Schaufenberg, uh What I find striking about this is this was was, was just supposed to be a you know a simple German city. Sort of in the middle of nowhere that uh, the 45th Division took, the Nazis that were still there uh, ended up conscripting essentially the entire town and forcing every able-bodied and in some cases non-able-bodied person to defend the town. And in the movie, and bearing out a little bit, at least in the history that I, as I understand it, the point of this seemed to be to use their own citizens essentially as human shields. Uh those who didn't fight, you know, were still holed up in homes from which the the German and SS troops would fire upon the Americans. Even in the film, they they you know one guy says, Well, you know, why are they why are they doing this? And let's just bypass the town. It's of no real military importance. And Felix Sparks uh and his commanding officer recognize that they're at a critical decision point here, and they could give in to what is sensible and simply bypass the town. And not you know, not do the hard work that's going to be required to liberate it, or not to liberate it, to defeat it. But if they do that, then they have just taught the Germans that conscripting civilians or using them as human shields is a great idea. And so for every German city they come to in the future, they're going to face the same tactics. And so in the series, the commanding officer says, so we're going to have to do what they think we don't sort of have the strength to do. And somebody says, what is that? And he says, "Raise the town." Uh, and they don't exactly raise the town historically, but they come quite close. and it's brutal door- to door fighting, street by street. Uh, they bring in heavy artillery, uh, you know they they blow apart structures, point blank range, you know they they decimate the town. And the frustrating bit of this is the town is destroyed, and many civilians killed unnecessarily. Like this did not have to happen this way because we don't always fight wars the way we want to but very often because of the way our enemies want to uh, the town was destroyed and i think it's a it's a good example of the kinds of horrific decisions that have to be made in battle because our enemies have a say in how we fight and as you know and as, as a lot of the listeners probably know I'm, I'm writing a book right now defending the dropping of the bomb on hiroshima and again there you find a scenario in which we have to fight a war in, in large measure, in the way that our enemy demands that war be fought, or we make other decisions that are just not in the interest of the common good. That particular battle uh, is, a, is, I think, just a good example of uh, you know, the kind of horrific decisions uh, that have to be made uh, in combat. Just because somebody knows, and Germany by this point knew that they had been defeated, uh, defeat does not always equal surrender. And some uh, unnecessarily grim decisions are very often made in that episode, uh, I think at numerous points, draws it out. And and plus, it should be said that uh, because an Auschlaufenberg's battle took place before the liberation of Dachau, uh, one supposes that the experiences the 45th Division had in Auschlaufenberg in some ways primed their behavior in Dachau. Um, lines can be drawn between the two.
0: And speaking about the liberation of Dachau, do you want to uh, kind of explain to the listeners what happened there and in the Coldyard incident?
1: Yes, for sure. We are now in what I think in the book is listed as Felix Sparks' 501st day in active combat. And they are ordered to a particular location. They don't quite know what they're going to find. But as they approach what looks to be some kind of prison or camp the first thing they encounter are rail, railroad lines and a series of rail cars and these have become uh to be called the death trains and felix spark uh, i think this comes out of the book but the the details are that they find in these cars approximately 3000 rotting corpses you know this alerts them that what they are about to experience on the other side of the camp walls is going to be unlike anything they had seen before. So they enter the camp and they are introduced to Hitler's war against the Jews. And Dachau is not a annihilation camp, not on the lines of a, uh, you know, a place um, like uh, Treblinka, um, you know, or an annihilation work camp like, uh, auschwitz Birkenau wasn't that massive, um but this was one in the heart of Germany uh where Jews and other political prisoners were uh killed and in the in the history, some of this doesn't occur i think in the miniseries. so they enter the camp and they find the prisoners um you know in 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 horrific condition uh emaciated starving wounded, all of that uh they find piles of corpses everywhere. Um, Because as we'll see in a moment, there's a coal yard there, but the coal yard is empty. And the reason the coal yard is empty is the Nazis have used all the coal to incinerate corpses, and they've run out. So toward the end of the war, they're just piling the gassed or or otherwise dead corpses just in in piles throughout the the compound. There's also, uh, this is described in detail in the book, Felix Sparks and some of his men uh, first they, they they find the surrendered guards, and not all the guards attempt to surrender, successfully surrender. Some of them are shot. Some of them are shot because you know again it's a it's a conflict situation. you don't know what's happening. Others are shot because the Americans are now uh, well and truly pissed. but most of them are taken prisoner, and then they empty out a couple hospitals where there are convalescing wounded. Uh, SS troops. And all of these are moved into the coyard uh, because there's high walls there and they're going to be easily contained. And Felix Sparks leaves them under guard and he continues his tour of the camp. And in the book, uh, the details continue. Uh, you know, there's one grim scenario, for instance, where they, uh, they enter the crematoria, uh, which were still operating uh, when they got there. The crematoria, of course, being the places where they would burn. The bodies of the dead. Uh, there were bodies uh, half consumed in the ovens. So the purpose of the ovens was very plain. There's one point where they find a kennel, and there is over, uh, over a hundred some odd uh, German dogs, you know, camp dogs, guard dogs. And the Nazis, of course, being sort of the bastards that they are, uh, would relieve boredom by tying prisoners in the dog yard and sick the dogs on them and the dog's sort of specialty uh was uh castrating the prisoners with their teeth and so the americans could see evidence of this and so all of these things now are boiling up inside and felix sparks hears gunfire and the gunfire he knows is coming from the coal yard and he presumably knows exactly what's happening and he runs to the coal yard uh now back up a bit. Uh Felix Sparks uh part of his mission here was to apprehend Hitler. And I can't remember the exact sequence of events, but uh because he was one of the units designated with trying to track down Hitler, he had a sort of an entourage of photographers. Plus the fact that I I think they knew something was going on at Dachau, they wanted photographers there. For one reason or another, a lot of photographs were taken. And one particular photographer who was in the courtyard at the time the shooting began. Uh, had a movie camera and was was, was shooting, what we, we call video was filming. Uh, and what happened is that the Americans lined the German prisoners, SS prisoners specifically, up against the wall of the coal yard in open fire. And Felix Sparks rushes in and dozens of them have already been gunned down, but he rushes in and we have on video of him running up to the machine gun firing his own pistol in the air and holding up his hand and shouting for them to stop. And so this is a, and the, the shooting did stop. Words were exchanged and the, the massacre ended at that point. But historically, uh, Felix Sparks and several of the men were charged with war crimes uh, for shooting unarmed prisoners. It never went to trial. Uh, General Patton eventually had the charges dismissed. Uh, but it's a, obviously it's a controversy to this day.
0: And so from a, I mean, a just war perspective, like that is clearly a violation.
1: Yep, it's a, it's a violation. I mean, you're not, uh, you know, international law, just war principles, the art of gentlemanliness, whatever sort of moral barometer you want to use. One is generally not expected or permitted to shoot prisoners. In an interesting video, which maybe we should link to, Alex Kershaw, who, as you noted, is the author of the, the book, The Liberator, from which the, the miniseries is drawn. Uh, he's quite equivocating, um, and he's a Brit. He's not an American, but he goes back and forth in his description of this event. At one moment, he calls it a massacre. At another moment, he calls it a shooting. At one moment, he says the massacre, or, or more, more specifically, the shooting, something to this effect, where there is a certain equivocation. Like, you know, he's not necessarily condoning what they did, but he understands it. You know, he has, he has no qualms about wondering whether or not... The SS deserved it. This is an Alex Kershaw. This is now me. You know, one would have to say, I think, that if you, after touring Dachau, you don't, at least let's put it this way, let's put it the most sort of uh, septic that I can. If after touring Dachau, you don't want to gun down the Nazi guards, your motivation is not. You know it's not justice, it's an extreme kind of mercy, because any sort of Johnny-on-the-spot judgment would suggest to you that these people deserve to be executed. Now, of course, reason steps in, and you realize you don't know what these individual guards have done. You don't know who directly is responsible. You don't know if any of these particular guys are. Some of them, it's more clear than others, but the ones you know convalescing in the hospital, do they have anything to do with this? Uh, do they have an SS insignia on their jacket? If they do, then you could suggest, yes, they, they have everything to do with this. But obviously, in this situation, it's unwarranted. There's no imminent danger. You know, there's no just cause to gun these people down. That might come in a day after a trial. Yeah, on this spot, it ought not to be done. But I think one can understand the motivations.
0: What say you one of the things I thought about when I saw this was, you know, reading back in the day, oral history of Germany, and it talked about the way that the Soviets treated Germans as they were coming into Germany and the way that the Americans treated the Germans were was quite different, where the Americans and the British, you know, my understanding is they, would, they were much more humane in their treatment of the Germans. And so the Germans actually wanted to surrender to the Americans and not to the Soviets, because the Soviets, I mean, just horrendous things that were happening. Right. And really shocking things. That was really the first time I kind of understood just that bit of the story, was reading that book way back in the day. And uh, so it does seem that the American way of fighting should be one that errs on the side of caution on that front. And uh, I think that is, you know, obviously better for the just war tradition and better for, I mean, if your enemy is more likely to surrender to you because they know that they won't be immediately gunned down, it's a lot better than if they fight to the death.
1: Right. Now, of course, World War II, probably any battle, in any war, is strewn with examples where people really try to fudge those margins, right? Where you fight to the bitter end, uh, and then just before your position is overrun, you throw down your weapon and hold up your hands. You know, some 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 of that becomes even more complicated, and you see a lot of people who simply said, you know, we're not going to take those kinds of surrenders. You know, there's a there's a point. That some soldiers feel like you ought already to have surrendered when you knew you were going to be overrun. You knew the position was lost, but instead, you, know, you took it to the nth degree. Which another person would say, "Well, that's their job. That's their duty." You know, as I said, they're you know this this comes hard on the heels. It's the 501st day, so they've seen it all. Um, they're exhausted. Uh, they you know they just come out of Alsfeldenberg, which should have been a walkover. Uh, the Germans fought an unnecessarily brutal battle there, compelling the Americans to make horrific decisions. Now they come to this place called Dachau. They're not ready for this. You know, we gotta remember these aren't, you know, seasoned adults. These are 17, 18, 19 year old kids by and large. Not all of them. But you know, the old men of these units are, you know, twenty-three, twenty-four years old. You know, they recognize that when they when they're in Dachau, one of the things Felix Sparks has noted. Uh, or had noted, is that by the time they get to Dachau and they look back at something like Auschaufenberg, and they realize the unnecessary delay that the clearly defeated Germans imposed on the Americans meant that every day, given that delay, more and more prisoners were dying in concentration camps, just like this one. And again, that does not justify what they did to those guards, but it does, I think, make it understandable. But as you say this is always understandable that's always the desire you know to to exact retribution for real and perceived moral crimes but it's the rising above that instinctive desire for revenge that that does mark one army apart from another you know as you say that on the soviet side the germans and the soviets tended not to surrender to one another because they knew that that was a death sentence Uh, in the asia-pacific war you see you know Very often, much the same thing. Uh, Not a lot of surrender. I think you know it it, it is. You you could say this this is a little bit late, but you could say that that American character is still demonstrated in the sheer fact that these men were court-martialed. And even though Patton sort of breezily dismissed the charges, the fact that they were court-martialed at all does still signal that even after an atrocity like this you know, that sort of American moral fiber remains. You see that after Abu Ghraib. You see that after, you know, any of the violations that Americans do in the field. You know, there are charges often levied. Uh, you know, the matter is disputed in court. And then judgments are rendered. And, and very often Americans go to jail for doing things that uh, contravene the laws of war.
0: Mm-hmm. And to me, it also shows the necessity of having a professional military because, of course, the United States had a very small military at the beginning of the war and they had to suddenly ramp up after Pearl Harbor. So yeah, then you're bringing in, like you said, 18-year-olds into this type of situation you know, when they haven't been trained that long. So yeah, it's, it's an interesting case study. and it's, a, it's something obviously that will be discussed for a long time.
1: Right. That's right. There's a, there's a line that there's uh in the story in the mini series, there's a fictitious character. I can't remember his name, but he's the, he's the Navajo sergeant. fit. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Uh, he's a, he's an amalgamation of several real life characters drawn together at least for the, for the film. But at one point, I think when they're in Anzio on the Via uh, Anziade, when they're, when they're holding uh, the line against the Germans, one of the men says to him, I'm, you know, I'm afraid something like that. And the sergeant's response is that fear is a reaction, courage, a decision. Uh, and that phrase, you could, you could play with the terms and you look at something like Dachau and you can say that rage is a reaction and then something like moral courage, a decision, right? That what those men experienced in Dachau, I mean, for them not to want to shoot those Nazi guards, I think would have been uh, inhuman. For them not to want to shoot those Nazi guards would have signaled some sort of, you know, almost uh, moral callousness after what they had seen in Dachau. So the rage is a reaction and it's even a a reasonable and natural and expected and even desired reaction. Uh, But then human beings, moral human beings, overcome those instinctive reactions and make reasonable, rational choices about them so moral courage being that decision uh, and i think the movie bears that out uh you know there's the there's the father-son scenario which apparently real happened really happened which you know so there's a father and a son who both enlisted in the same fighting unit which i sort of can't imagine uh that that's something i would want to do i'd like, yeah, be
0: kind of terrifying it'd be horrifying yeah, some of these stories, I'm like, oh, did that happen? And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that happened. happened.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess the only thing more horrible than that would be not being together. You know, but there's the, the scene where the sun is beginning to break down. And I won't give it away, but he has a humanizing moment where you know, he goes from one moment wanting to see all the, all the Germans. I was about to say the Nazis, not, not the Nazis, want to see all the Germans, making no distinctions, killed. And then he has a humanizing moment where he's able to ratchet that back you see that kind of thing over and over. And I think the miniseries holds uh, or tells those stories well. Mm -hmm.
0: So what do you think about doing these movies about World War II? What's the benefit of going back to this same well that so many other movies have drawn upon? Or, you know, is there much more to be drawn upon in this era?
1: Yeah, I think there are. I mean, you know, a part for me is, uh, you know, that I, I do a lot of work on moral injury uh, I think, you know, moral injury is, you know, doing something that goes against a deeply held moral conviction. So you can bet, you know, that those men who gunned down those Nazis in that coal yard suffered for it. Felix Sparks suffers for some of the things he did, even the things he did within the laws of war. But uh, I, I think these stories are continually important because they help set moral standards. They build a national mythology, and I don't mean to say like a national fiction, um, but they mythologize the things that we've done in the past. They tell the stories that need to be told. It's, you know, it's Bilbo Baggins' Red Book. Uh, These are stories that have to be told again and again uh, because human beings have a capacity to forget. And, you know, you look at these crybabies running around the streets of America, and not every issue is... You know it's a silly fixation. there's real injustices out there that that some of them are are rightly complaining about uh but I think we've become soft uh you know which is crazy after twenty years of near constant military deployment uh but so few Americans are involved in that that you know i I think you know we we start miscalling things uh you know we we you know we get terms like love wrong. We get terms like good, wrong, evil, wrong. Uh, and ideally, you start telling stories like the stories that emerge out of great human conflict. And some of the old platitudes begin to, you know, begin to reconstitute. You, you learn what courage is. You learn what, what you know, brotherhood is. Uh, what self-donation, other-centeredness, what things like this are, what love is. So I think these stories have to be told because uh, to not tell them is to forget. And we will forget them at our peril because things like Dachau are every bit as bad as those men from the 45th Infantry Division saw them to be. And the rage that they felt at these things was rightly placed. And if we forget how to rage at the right things, then I think we're truly in peril. And I look at, you know, I look at the national conversations or the national, you know, screams that are being thrown back and forth. And there's an awful lot of people raging about an awful lot of wrong things and not raging at the things they ought to be raging about. So I'm just an old fart who thinks these old stories need to be told again and again.
0: Well, Leveki, thank you so much for talking with us about this series. And I'm looking forward to the next one. Is there another one? I don't know. I mean, just the next whatever movie. Joe. next dark ops next dark ops Whee!
1: me too all right mountain things a lot